scripture this morning is uh, from 2 Samuel 6, from 12 to the end of the chapter. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who broke the ark, who bore the ark of the Lord, had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel and the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we submit to you. We submit to the authority of your word, the teaching. Father, we pray that you would convict us and change us and mold us into the people that you want us to be, wholly devoted to you. Father, we love you, and we are grateful for this experience, for this togetherness of worshiping and adoring you. You are our God, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. Um, as we work through 2 Samuel, just a reminder that um, we don't do Christmas-themed ser- series. Maybe Christmas Day I might do that. Maybe Christmas Eve. But the reason for that, we're just going to work, we work through Scripture passages here. And it's a reminder that Every passage points to Christ, even the Old Testament. It's, it's all a foreshadowing of and pointing to the ultimate 
uh, Christ being born, Christ being crucified, Christ being resurrected, Christ ascending into heaven, saving his people. And so uh, what better way than to talk about, interestingly enough, on the third advent, which is focused on joy, to be speaking of David's joy. See how things work out? Yeah, I didn't do that on purpose. I just happened to be working through it, and this is the next passage, and sure enough, the Spirit works in that way. And so we're going to continue to just keep going through Second Samuel um, and, uh, and use God's Word to teach us and to guide us, um, to speak to us even in this Christmas season. So in Second Samuel, well, let me say in this passage, um, if you individually, if you and I don't learn from our mistakes, you are bound to repeat it. Let me say that again. If, if you don't learn from your mistakes, you are bound to repeat it. Now, in David's situation, remember last week we talked about how he went to grab, take the ark and he was going to bring it into Jerusalem and uh, they put it on a, on a cart driven by oxen, and as it was going, the oxen slipped and tripped, and then the ark started to fall off, and, and um, oh shoot, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Thank you. It started to fall, he touches it. Uzzah touches the ark, and immediately God kills him. And you say, why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, we talked about how he was afraid of it was going to get dirty, and he thought the dirt was dirtier than him, but in reality, his sin was so great before the Lord, and the Lord is so perfect and holy, that to touch the ark and disobey God by touching the ark, because he was not a Levite, and they were carrying it incorrectly, this all falls on David. David thought this was wonderful. And in the process, in transporting the ark incorrectly, a man loses his life. God took the life of Uzzah and taught David a lesson. You honor me, you obey me, and you respect me because this, this is how I told you to transport the ark. I want you to take it in Jerusalem, but you're disobeying me. And when you disobey me, lives are at stake. Well, David fears the Lord, and then he puts the ark in the house of Obed-Edom. And when he hears that God has blessed Obed-Edom and God has blessed Obed-Edom's house, David then makes another attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem, but this time with a few changes because he learned from his mistake. Or better yet, let's just say it this way, he learned from his sin because he sinned in what he did with the ark. 1 Chronicles 15 gives us a little bit more detail to this, so you can read that chapter later if you want to. I'm going to refer to it a couple times. Uh, but now the Levites are carrying it on two poles on their shoulders, which is the correct way to transport the, guard, the Ark of the Covenant, because the Lord commanded that. This is how you're going to transport it. So finally, they do it the right way, and the presence of God is finally making its way into the city of David, and along with it, there's an atmosphere of exuberant joy and praise. Rejoicing, dancing, shouting, the playing of horns. It's referenced six separate times in this passage. And if something is repeated, what? It, 
it's probably, I love hearing kids say that. This is a good lesson. If you're reading a scripture passage and something is repeated, it's probably important. So you've got to figure out why six times in these verses is there this reference to joy? Well, there's a, a real sense of excitement and joy, overwhelming joy that's being experienced by David and the people of God. Now, David's been anointed king, and that's great, but Israel is finally having the presence of God with them within Jerusalem, the, if you want to call it the capital city of, of Israel. After seven and a half years of civil war, peace is finally there. Again, that's awesome. But it's nothing compared to the presence of Yahweh being with them. What else would be expected other than, uh, other than sheer and utter joy by David and the people? But this is not a joy that's out of control. Nor are the people acting in a worthy, unworthy manner before the Lord. And the words of Michael... I kind of have to give a little disclaimer here. The words of Michael in verse 20, this is how I understood it growing up, okay? Um, Seem to infer that David, he's wearing a linen ephod, and only a linen ephod, because that's what it sounds like in her words. Great, you, you, you're uncovered before the people. Well, what does that mean? Well, she's giving this hint that somehow David's only wearing the linen ephod, but that, one, it can't be true. Because nakedness before the Lord is punishable by death. That's in Exodus chapter 28. And in 1 Chronicles 15, again, it tells us with a little bit more detail, he was wearing a robe of fine linen, as also were all of the Levites. So David had removed his kingly robes, and he had clothed himself in the simple clothing of the average Levite. So David is communicating to the people that even he, the Lord's anointed king, finally on the throne of all of Israel, is subject to the Lord. And it's great that David is king right now, but even more wonderful that the one who made him king is now residing amongst his people. So David and the people are leaping and dancing and singing and shouting Horns are blowing all over the place. It's this atmosphere of of a party, really, a good party. And every sixth step, an offering is made to God. And when the ark arrives in Jerusalem, even more offerings are made before the Lord. That's That's a lot of dead animals. That's a lot of sacrifices. I don't care if it was a mile. Every six steps in that mile, that's a lot of dead animals and sacrifices that are given to the Lord. And then they show up in Jerusalem, and he gives even more sacrifices to God. Now, it's important to point out that this time of joy, praise, sacrifices, dancing, um, to use these words, it is descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay, what I mean by that is that this was not a normal worship service, but a special event in the life of God's people. So one can praise the Lord with joy and thanksgiving without dancing in the aisles and making a lot of noise. But one can also be so stubborn as to refuse to show the smallest hint of joy in a worship service. Ultimately, this is, this is not a prescription for a certain style of worship, but instead is a, is a, it is a description 
of David's humility before the Lord. People will take this passage and say, you must worship this way. And I'm here to say, that ain't the point of the passage. Joy is there. Worship is there. But there's a deeper sense than just the style of worship. As my grandfather once said to my mom, when she said, she said, how come you don't look like you're enjoying yourself? And he looked at her like, I'm 85, first of all. Um, second of all, what makes you think I'm not joyful before the Lord just because I'm not jumping up and down and clapping and raising my hands? Joy is not an action as much as it is as a heart of worship before God. You can be stubborn, have a dark heart, you can also be dancing in the aisles and have no love for Jesus. It's about the heart. But again, I digress. This passage is about David's humility before the, before the Lord. And in that humiliation, yes, that's the correct word, in that humiliation, David could not help but rejoice that the presence of God was finally coming to abundantly bless him and to abundantly bless Israel, his people, God's people. So when the ark is finally in its resting place, David blesses the people and he distributes, in verse 19, it says, the whole multitude to the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each other, like to one another. Like, what? What is it? Why? Like, let's bless the Lord or make a sacrifices. Now everybody have some food and go home. Like, hey, maybe that's just the way that, you know, churches do it, right? After every service, we got Panera, right? That's our, that's our cakes, right? Well, why, why does he do this? What's the point of this? Well, David's spoken blessing and the giving of food is a reminder to the people of God's abundant blessing, abundantly blessing them by his presence being with them. Does that make sense? He is in their midst. And David is saying, not only as the king am I speaking a blessing upon you, but I'm going to give you all this food. Now, that wasn't like 20 people. This is a huge multitude of people. And David is giving bread out left and right. He's saying, honor the Lord, Israel, Honor the Lord, and he will bless you just as he blessed Obed-Edom and his household. But there was one person in the city of Jerusalem who was not rejoicing. As Michael witnessed David's humble and joyous dancing before the Lord, it says she despised him in her heart. We're given two reasons as to why she would hold David with such contempt. First, he wasn't acting like the king. He wasn't acting like a king. And second, and this seems, it's referenced a number of times, I think four or five times, where it says, Michael, the, Saul, the daughter of Saul. Michael, the daughter of Saul. Michael, the daughter of Saul. I think that's in there three times. And then David references her kinship, if you want to say. So there's, there's a major reason why Saul, why is he brought up? Well, I think in her mind, she's saying Saul would never have acted that way. 
she says to, to David, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. You know who the vulgar fellows are? The people who hate God. You're acting like a pagan. You're acting like a Gentile, she's saying, to put it in more modern terms. To Michael, David's removal of his kingly robes to dress like all the other people in worship of God, in her eyes, was actually a dishonoring of David. It was a dishonoring of him. And his leaping and dancing and shouting and praising was all below his station as king. You should be more dignified than that. You should know better, David. But I think the greater reason for her despising David falls back on the fact, again, that Saul lost the kingdom. As if she was saying again, my father would never have done this. Shame on you. Shame on you. And she's probably right. Saul would not do that. Not for the reasons she thinks. But David's response to her cuts right to the heart of the passage. And this is why I say, Humility is the point of this, not worship and praise. That's there, but the point of it is humility. Basically, this is what David says. Michael, my wife, daughter of Saul, just to remind you, it was the Lord who chose me as king above your father and his household, which is a little dig at Michael. I am king, you are not. Oh, and the Lord chose me and not you. Nor did he choose Saul in the end. I humbled myself before the Lord. Everything that I did, all the worship, all the merrymaking was done before the Lord. That's another thing that's repeated over and over in this passage. Before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord. I removed my royal robes and I took upon myself the humble dress of a common Levite in order to point the attention not to me, not to give the praise to myself, not to give the glory to myself, but to point it all away from me and to put it on the Lord. And I will make myself even more contemptible, even more humble. I will demean myself even more and be even more despised in your eyes if it means that the Lord has given more praise. You hear, you hear what he's saying? Michael, your heart's wrong. If I have to be brought so low that I'm in the mud as long as God has given the glory, I don't care. And I'll wallow in the mud as much as I have to. That's the heart of David. That's the heart of David. And those women, the ones whom you say, I, I have become dishonorable to them, guess what? They're going to hold me even greater in honor. They're going to hold me even to greater honor than you could ever imagine. Now, just as with her father, Michael's pride came before the honor of the Lord. She was unwilling to humble herself in praise and worship of the Lord as God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant entered the city. She was more concerned as to how she looked to the people just as her father did so many times when he was king, than how she looked to God. 
you need to act your station, David, a.k.a. look at me, I'm dignified. I wasn't losing my mind over this. And David says, you go ahead and be, be, be dignified. I'm going to be undignified before the Lord because he's given the glory. And you're thinking only of yourself. And instead of abundant blessing, Michael receives abundant judgment. Or probably a more accurate word would be curse. Because at the, at the end of our Sunday services, we try to do this every single Sunday. We receive the high priestly blessing that's found in Numbers 6, which gives us a good idea of the type of blessing that David spoke over the people in this chapter. I'm not saying this is exactly what he said, but the blessing of Aaron in number six is a, is a really good general blessing to help us understand what does it mean to be blessed by the Lord. Now, opposite of that is to be cursed by the Lord, to have the judgment of God upon you. And so what does it mean to be blessed? Well, if you look at the blessing in number six, to be blessed by the Lord is to be kept by him. It is to have his face turn to and shine upon us, to receive his grace, to be given peace. And so to receive God's curse, if you flip everything, is to be rejected by God, is to have his, first, his face turn away from us, to receive his judgment, not his grace, to be given chaos and war instead of peace. Now, to be childless was seen at that time as a judgment and punishment from God. So whether God closed Michael's womb or David refused to go into her, her childlessness is a judgment against her pride and contempt, not towards David, but towards the Lord. And that she had no child to the day of her death, and not simply for a short time, is a sign of abundant judgment. Her heart was set on her and not on the Lord, and it brought the judgment of God upon her. Now, like David's worship, and here I have to give a little disclaimer, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, if you are a woman who is unable to have children, it does not mean that you are cursed and judged by God. Does God close wombs? Yes, he does, even today. But his reasons are his, no, are his own, and we may never know the whys. But what we do know is that like, like the man who was blind from birth in John chapter 9, things happen so that God may be given the glory. So even in barrenness, you can and should give praise, honor, and glory to God. Even in that, God can be given the glory. We just have to make sure we watch our own hearts and not let pride overcome us. Now, David's humility is a type and shadow of the humility of the true anointed king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's just not me saying that, okay? So turn with me in your Bibles or on your app. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This speaks of Christ's example of humility, how we are to live that out, but it gives an understanding of how then does David do what David did, but in a bigger, more greater way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And I got to get my glasses on or on. There we go. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul is writing to believers. These are God's people, Christians. Who though he was who was in the who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, not grasped as in thinking, but Jesus was in heaven and he didn't hold on to his position in heaven. He didn't grab a hold of it and hold on to it tightly, but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, becoming born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus willingly left his throne in heaven. It wasn't something he was holding on to. I don't want to go. He wasn't screaming and crying. Don't make me go, Father. Don't make me go. He didn't do that. He willingly let it go to be born as a baby in a manger. And like David, Jesus did not grasp again onto his royal throne, but he said humbled himself before his Father in heaven. He took the form of a servant. He put on the linen ephod, and he obeyed his Father even to the point of death upon a cross. Because of Christ's humiliation, God has highly exalted and honored him above every name so that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Christ. He is the Messiah. Why? So that God can be glorified. He did it all for the glory of God. That's when people say, he died for me. He did. He, Christ died for me. That's like secondary. He died so that God the Father can be glorified. And our salvation is just cherry on top. It's a wonderful thing. Don't don't hear me wrong. Believe me. It's eternal life in Jesus Christ and salvation from the wrath of God for our sins. It's a beautiful thing. But ultimately, it was done to the glory of God. His humiliation... And his glory of the Father points us, who are God's people, to the abundant blessings that are, that are found in him. Jesus says himself in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy my sheep. But I came that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly abundantly not just like halfway not just a little bit of life but like abundant 
life, like more Panera than you could ever eat your entire life. You want to put it in today's context. Through Christ's humiliation, he brings his people, again, not just life, but life in abundance, life eternal. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we say if you are not a believer, if you have not been saved by grace and not by works, you couldn't fully grasp why we do this. We, those who, who don't understand who God is, they see the communion table and they go, ah, well, I mean, it's like a drink and bread. Good for you, a ritual that makes you saved? No, no, this is, this is a ritual that's called a reminder. This is Christ's command to us, remember what I did for you. Remember my humiliation and the glory of God the Father so that in my death you might receive abundant life, life eternal. And so in a minute here, we're going to take communion. And here is my suggestion to take this time to ask these questions of yourself. This is not to think of your spouse, to think of your kids, to think of your neighbor, to think of other family or friends or anybody else in this entire world, but to look inward and ask yourself these questions. Am I like Michael or am I like the servant's servant? You you understand that? He says, I will become even more undignified than this before these female servants' servants. Not just the servants, but the servants of the servants. Those who are most humble, they will look at me because I've become like them and they will honor me for that. Am I like Michael or am I like the servants' servants? Do I dishonor and despise the king? Is my heart filled with pride, unwilling to submit myself before the Lord? Then ask and pray for God to change your heart. Confess your pridefulness to him. Ask him to obey your eyes, to see the truth that the humiliation of Jesus is the only way to receive abundant life, eternal life in his presence. Take this time to pour yourself before God. And if that's where you find yourself, I don't need Jesus. I don't, I'm good. I'm fine. I've got abundance whatever, I don't, need, I don't need God. If you find yourself there, here's, here's, here's the words. Like this is, this is a dangerous place for you or a dangerous time for you to hear the gospel. You are now held accountable for the truth that you need Jesus. And so take this time, instead of joining us with communion, take this time, pour your heart before God. Humble yourself. See what he did, know what he did, hear what he did, hear of what he did and confess your sin. We don't have communion, please. We're not going to judge you. It's not our job. Our job is to remember. Our job is to, glo- job is to glorify Him. Now, if you say, I do live a life, I desire to live a life which gives Him glory, more and more honor and praise and worship, if you can ask yourself, am I like the servant's servants? That like my king, I am filled with humility before the Lord, seeking to do his will, 
pointing all others around me to the greatness of our God, to the greatness of our King? Will you become even more contemptible in the eyes of those who reject the Lord, the King, so that more and more glory would be given to the Lord? And you answer that question, you say, yes, I will be even more contemptible than this. I will be in the mud even more. If it means more glory to God, then use this time of reflection to glorify and praise God even more. Confess, repent anything that's in your life and in your heart, which may be standing in the way of Him giving, um, giving your giving Him the full glory. We're all there, even as believers. Sin enters our life. We struggle, right? And, and it doesn't mean that I'm no longer a child of God. It just means that my relationship with Him is not as strong as it should be. There's something between us. And I have to confess my sin before Him and repent of my sin so that I can give Him even more glory that He is worthy of receiving. Confess that to Him and then thank Him for His abundant blessing of the joy and peace and life that He's given you. Not because you're awesome, but because He is glorious. So, When we come, we're ready to go to the table. When you are ready, you can start a line in the back and walk past the Christmas tree, take a cup, take a piece of bread, sit at the chair, reflect, pray, praise God, confess sin, come before Him, give Him glory. And then as a family together, we will take communion in remembrance of Him. This is a, it's a time of joy, even if it's a solemn joy, because someone had to pay the price for my sin. And he did it willingly and lovingly. And so we should give him the glory for that. So when you are ready, go ahead and make your way around, and then we'll take it together as a family. So come whenever you're ready.